0: Welcome back to Drilled. I'm Amy Westervelt. Today, I'm joined by investigative journalist Jeff Dembicki to talk about his new book, The Petroleum Papers. It's a really interesting read. It gets into how the American founders of the tar sands industry in Alberta, Canada, helped to orchestrate climate denial and various other tactics to stop action on climate change. He traces this all the way back to the late 1950s through to this seminal conference that the Koch brothers helped to orchestrate in the U.S. in 1991. And to today, where a lot of the same talking points and strategies that those folks helped to architect are still alive and well today and working quite well. Jeff also writes frequently for Vice News. He's had a bunch of really amazing stories up there in the last year or so, so we're gonna talk about that a bit as well. That's coming up after this quick break. New Year's resolutions are almost destined to fail. I resolve almost every year to work less and we all know it's not going to (laughs) happen. But one thing I have been able to stick to and you can too is switching up the way you do laundry in 2024 and grabbing earth breeze. I know what you're thinking. Laundry is not so fun. Those huge, heavy plastic jugs measuring out the right amount, getting goo all over the place. It's annoying. EarthBreeze eco sheets totally changed the game. Unlike powder or liquid, EarthBreeze actually looks like a dryer sheet, but it's ultra-concentrated laundry detergent. And it's super easy. You just throw it into your laundry and that's it. There's no measuring. There's no lugging anything around. Your laundry comes out clean. It smells great. I love it. It's genuinely made my life easier. It's also dermatologist tested hypoallergenic free of bleach and dyes so it's perfect for every load you'll never run out of detergent again thanks to EarthBreeze's easy flexible subscription you can adjust pause or cancel at any time with no hidden fees or penalties and you save a whopping 40 percent when you subscribe plus shipping is always free and eco sheets are packaged in a slim cardboard envelope that saves a ton of space it also gets rid of one more plastic thing in your life. And the company has donated over a hundred million loads of laundry and counting to those in need. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save 40%. 40 4, 0. Go to earthbreeze.com slash drilled. That's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E.com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription.
1: My name is Jeff Dembicki, and I am an investigative climate change journalist living in New York right now. But I'm originally from Canada, and specifically the province of Alberta, which is home to the Canadian tar sands. And I have a, a new book out now called *The Petroleum Papers*. Inside the Far Right Conspiracy to Cover
0: Up Climate Change. What prompted you to think, oh, this might be a book? What did you start to dig into and what did you find?
1: So I was really fascinated a few years ago, reading all the reporting that came out around what Exxon knew about climate change and how Exxon had researched it internally and then had hid the findings from the public, distorted the findings and essentially created this like fucked up situation with climate change that we're now in, where we've wasted all this time debating whether it's even real. And so most of that reporting concerned what was happening in the U.S. But, you know, being from Canada and Alberta, I knew that Exxon was heavily involved in the Canadian tar sands and so were a bunch of other major oil companies and so i wondered you know is is there more to this climate denial story that's happened north of the border and in a lot of ways the the border doesn't even really matter because the vast majority of all of this tar sands oil is flowing into the US so that that was sort of the starting point or the, the question I asked myself when I started researching this book.
0: That's so interesting. And I don't want to have you spoil the book for people, but um, to the extent that you can, can you share a little bit about what you found on that front?
1: So I think this story really begins in 1959. And that's that's when there was this 100th birthday celebration for the oil and gas industry at Columbia University in New York. So it was it was a big deal. All these oil and gas executives were there. There were keynote speeches and everything. And one of the people, this was reported in a story in The Guardian, one of the people who spoke there was Edward Teller, who... Um, Was one of the the inventors of the atomic bomb, and so Edward Teller goes up in front of the room of executives. They're all, you know, giddy about all the money they're gonna make from oil and gas over the next century. And Edward Teller is like, you know, I've been looking into this new global threat that might even be a bigger deal for the world than nuclear war, and it's it's this thing called the greenhouse gas effect, and then. Edward Teller leads the room through sort of the basics of how global warming happens. He's like, when you pull oil and gas from the ground, you burn it, releases emissions into the atmosphere, this warms the climate. And then he says, which I found quite shocking, you know, in 1959, this could potentially melt the polar ice caps flood a bunch of the world's coastal cities and New York, like where we're having this birthday party could one day be underwater. And I was like, holy shit, like that that on its own is just such an amazing scene to me. Wow. But one of the executives, he's like literally sitting next to Edward Teller on stage and listening to him is this guy, Robert Dunlop. And Robert Dunlop is the head of this, U.S. company called Sun Oil. And I I thought that was quite interesting because I knew Sun Oil has a big history in Canada. And so I looked a bit deeper into it. And sure enough, four years after Robert Dunlop heard that climate change warning from Edward Teller, Robert Dunlop was up in Northern Alberta helping set up one of the first commercial tar sands operations ever. And that basically set the entire industry in motion. And it was expected at the time that the tar sands would hold oil rivaling what was in Texas, Saudi Arabia, just like an absolutely massive deposit of oil.
0: Wow. I guess, yeah. Could you talk a little bit about the cross-pollination of Climate denialism between the U.S. and Canada. I I, I love this this thing that you said um, just a couple minutes ago about how the the border you know it's kind of well it is made up right it's not a, it's not a land border but even like politically and ideologically when it comes to this stuff I think um, it just seems like it's all kind of part of the same thing so I, I'm just curious about what you saw in terms of. I don't know, like these ideas kind of spreading on both sides through folks who are working in the industry and and probably crossing that border all the time.
1: Well, I, I think I'll, I'll keep it in the, the 60s for the moment because I think that's kind of where the answer to your question begins. And, you know, one of the big takeaways for me in doing this book is that Canadian oil is always aligned with some of the most reactionary political forces in the United States. And so, for example, um, you know, after Robert Dunlop had been warned about climate change by Edward Teller, there he is up developing this massive oil industry. And, And another person who played a big role in that and who was also part of Sun Oil was this guy, Howard Pugh. And Howard Pugh is is a really fascinating figure because in some ways he's sort of like a, a Koch brothers style oil and gas person. Like he he was like fervently anti-communist. He thought you know the Soviets were trying to spread their godless ideology across the planet. Howard Pugh was also deeply, deeply religious and he um was very much in support of tapping this massive oil industry in canada because he believed that having this giant source of oil that could supply the us would be a way to to fight against um soviet control of the world it would make america strong and and self-sufficient mm-hmm. and so in in these very early days of the tar sands being Set up in Canada, you kind of had this, this fusion of reactionary Christianity, this very like libertarian anti-government worldview of Howard Pugh. And then you had legitimate climate warnings ignored by the people who were doing it. And I, I think this is like the beginning of the formula that's come to define all climate denial and reactionary climate politics over the past few decades.
0: Yeah, it's amazing how much that whole ideology of connecting national identity with the fossil fuel industry and and then those on one side and like communism on the other just comes up again and again and again all throughout. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> It's really, uh, yeah. Did you find anything in your research that you were particularly surprised to find? Like whether it's, you know, how early some of this stuff started or a particular figure that turned up that you weren't expecting, what, what were some of like the more surprising discoveries?
1: So a really surprising thing that I found, or at least the thing that sort of like shocked me <laughs> the most, um, had to do with an Exxon company in Canada called Imperial Oil. And so after, after Sun Oil set up their first tar sands operation, the second major tar sands operation was set up by Imperial, which is mm-hmm. it's basically it's, it's like Exxon's Canadian arm. And so Imperial was doing all this research about climate change, like over the, the 70s and 80s. And that, that was part of like the broader interest that Exxon had in the issue. But in, in the early 1990s, Imperial Oil, you know, they, they felt like they had figured out what climate change is about. And they started mm-hmm. to look into, if as a society we wanted to fix this thing, like what would we do? And so in the early 90s, Imperial Oil, they hired this economics like consultancy and, and they ran various models of climate change solutions. And this is, this is like very early days for anyone talking about climate change, like period. Imperial is mm-hmm. already studying solutions. And it determined that if, if there was a national tax on all of the carbon emitted across the Canadian economy... Uh This could result in quote-unquote approximate stabilization of CO2 emissions. And so Imperial was like, this this is how you stop emissions, like the thing we need to do. Um, And then Imperial calculated what the impact to the economy would be, and it wasn't bad at all. They they figured there would be, you know, a a hit at first as, as some polluting industries shut down. But mm-hmm. that, would, that would be mostly offset by all of the revenues that governments would have from taxing carbon that governments could then use to fund a massive green stimulus. Mm-hmm. Um, but Imperial looked specifically at how a policy like this would hurt its tar sands operations and it determined that it would be horrible for the company. It would cost them uh, maybe like over $900 million or something. And so in in a document from 1993, Imperial Oil described a list of talking points that executives at the company and at Exxon should use to sort of like spin this research for people in media and government. Mm -hmm. And they they told people to, you know, stress the huge economic risks of taking action on climate change, which they knew, you know, were exaggerated. Um, It's said to portray climate solutions as as having uncertain environmental benefits. And once again, like they, they knew that that wasn't accurate. These solutions could stop climate change. And so that, that just blew my mind because I was like, at at such an early date, like I I was just like five or six years old. They had all the knowledge in place to, to stop this climate emergency. Like we we could have done it back then. And they purposefully distorted that and made sure it never happened.
0: Yeah. Can you talk about this 1991 conference where the Cokes kind of zeroed in on, oh, this, this could be a real problem. Like, let's figure out our strategy here. Um, I know I've like seen bits and bobs about this over, over the years, but I I feel like you get into more depth on it in the book than, um, than any stories I've seen. So yeah, I'd love to hear you talk about the uh, the Cato 1991 conference.
1: Well, this kind of gets into what I was saying about Canadian oil always being aligned with the most reactionary forces yeah. in the U.S. And so in my research for this book, I was reading um, Cokeland by Christopher oh, Leonard. Yeah.
0: So good. Yeah, he <laughs> mentions it in there. Yeah, yeah, that's right.
1: Mm-hmm. And there's, there's some really amazing sections in that book where he's talking about the importance of this oil and gas refinery in Minnesota to the Koch empire. And basically like after Charles and David Koch inherited their business empire from their father, one one of the first like hugely successful decisions they made was was to take control of this Pine Bend refinery in Minnesota, which, which processed like low quality oil from Canada and then sold it at a premium into the US Midwest. And th- this for years was considered like the cash cow of Coke Industries and was really pivotal in allowing the company to become like this industrial behemoth that it is today. And Pine Bend now is is one of the biggest refiners of Canadian tar sands oil in the United States. And so as this oil from Canada is like funding the Coke empire, they have all this money and they decide to invest it in like the most reactionary libertarian politics and so they they set up the the Cato Institute and it's this think tank basically arguing that the government should should barely exist right then in, in 1991. Um, James Hansen has testified to Congress about climate change it's on the public radar all these people are are talking about it and Cato's like oh shit like we need we need a position on climate change we need to do something about this and so they hold this conference in Washington DC and from what i can tell it's it's one of the first conferences devoted specifically to climate change denial and And the people, the people at this thing, they know that what they're doing is a little bit weird. Like I read through the brochure of the conference and the language is a little bit defensive in it. It's sort of like, you know, you may be wondering why us conservatives are trying to cast doubt on, on climate change. Isn't this something we should all be taking care of? (laughs) Wow. I think what, what Cato was responding to is that in the early days, climate change wasn't like a super polarized, hyper-partisan issue. And in in fact, like Republicans had done like big legislation on the environment, like the acid rain stuff Uh Um, in Canada, conservative governments had done, you know, huge environmental stuff and it, it was just seen as like common sense it appealed to conservatives. Yeah, um, It was really good for the economy.
0: George Bush senior even like had stump speeches about it. He like talked yeah. about how like people like don't, he, he said something like the greenhouse effect hasn't met the white house effect. Like we're going to get on top of this. <laughs>
1: you know? It's yeah. crazy to look back on now, but, this Cato Institute conference, you know, like backed by Coke Industries, which had very real like material interests at stake, set out to destroy that consensus. And, and they thought that one way they could do this was by undermining the science that climate change was based on, and so one of the people at the conference was this guy Patrick Michaels, mm-hmm. wasn't a climate scientist, but he had been involved in these early test campaigns in several U.S. communities mm-hmm. to see if they could successfully push a message undermining climate science. Um, Rush Limbaugh was was part of that too, and they they found in these in these early like experimental campaigns that a large majority of Americans were really worried about climate change. But if you started poking holes in the science and saying like, you know, we don't actually know what this is really about, then concern just like dropped off a cliff and they were like, holy shit, we have the formula, like, let's take this national. And so Patrick Michaels and some of these other people were at that early conference in Washington. And I think this, this sort of like laid the groundwork.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. Wow. Okay. When I, um, when I scheduled to have you on, I was like, oh man, I've got to have him talk about the guy who like was a, an undercover, um, operative trying to, to like sleep with activists in the climate (laughs) movement. (laughs) This is the craziest story I've read in a while. Um, so yeah, this is a, a story that you did for Vice. The, the headline is How a married undercover cop having sex with activists killed a climate movement. Um, What the hell is this story, Jeff? (laughs) Well, I mean, I think this is like related in
1: a bigger picture sense to what the book is about, which is like how embedded with fossil fuels national governments have become and like the lengths they're willing to go to to undermine anyone who um who advocates for for something different and you know I like I didn't discover or break this story this this was a big thing over in the UK and Europe and it, essentially this like unit within the the UK police um sent this married cop Mark Kennedy undercover in a radical climate change group for like 7 years and
0: That's crazy. Was this just like a they were, oh, these might be domestic terrorists, like Earth Liberation Front type of, of thing? Yeah, and it was
1: part of a broader campaign. They were infiltrating all sorts of um, leftist groups across the UK, like animal rights, some um, socialists. you know, and, and any anything that was like left of, of what the government considered like respectable, politics and and so this this guy mark kennedy like he goes and and infiltrates this small group and they they were just like meeting in this little center in like nottingham in the uk and they had no idea that you know the government would would even really have an interest in infiltrating them or seeing them as all that important and and mark kennedy you know he had this story that he was like a professional climber and then um like a bigger backstory that he was like a former cocaine runner from Pakistan who was trying to like atone for his criminal past. And one of the techniques this cop used to gain the trust of the movement and climate groups was to sleep with female activists and form relationships with them. And and so when, when the cop was finally outed, this became, you know, a massive national scandal because these were not consensual relationships in any way the women were like we we just thought we were dating this like cool activist guy we had no idea he was like giving information about us back to his superiors and and the british state in order to undermine the climate movement like what the fuck
0: (laughs) so fucked up yeah wow
1: we could spend like hours going into all of the insane details of this story but if people if people want to check it out it's it's in this vice piece that that i did but the you know the repercussions of this are are still ongoing there is this this big legal battle led by um several of of the women who were deceived by mark kennedy and they they just won a big legal victory earlier this year Um, and you know it it just goes to show how entrenched these fossil fuel industries are in our politics that that like you you could it justify this this sort of like you know moral insanity in order ah. to to protect this industry that's destroying the planet i mean i i feel like the people in power have you know, just, just slowly become like less and less detached from reality. And like, these are the lengths they're willing to go to.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That makes me wonder too, if if you could talk a little bit about anything you found with respect to efforts in in Canada to either combat activism or, um, you know, prevent it from happening in the first place. I know that there, um, I know for, for sure, the Edelman, I think it was working for Imperial Oil, was doing some interesting things up there around fake activist groups against environmental policy. So I'm, I'm curious if you found stuff like that, too, that kind of played into all of this.
1: Yeah, well, the the main tactic to discredit environmental groups in Canada is, is to claim that they're all part of this huge U.S.-led conspiracy to shut down the tar sands mm. in order to benefit these like wealthy elites in new Tersoros. york <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. it's it's an insane conspiracy but that that's been like the dominant mode of attack from the fossil fuel industry and the politicians aligned with it wow. for like a, a decade or more and and it, it got to the point even where like the tar sands province of alberta mm-hmm. spent like Two million dollars on a government-led inquiry into major environmental groups to see like how much U.S. funding they've received over the years and and whether they're acting on behalf of like foreign interests. Wow! In some way. Wow! And you know, essentially, this this just mimics the climate denial tactic in so many ways, which is like we can't win against these environmental groups on the merit of our arguments because they're right. If we keep digging like all of this oil and gas out of the ground, it's, it's just going to like totally screw us over in terms of climate change. And um, it's, it's also like a really precarious industry. Um, it's like boom and bust. Mm-hmm. The province's finances are always all over the place. So Instead, you know, we're going to spread this conspiracy theory and just plant doubt about the intentions of these groups. And so, in fact, the government inquiry in Alberta, um, you know, found no evidence of wrongdoing, but it was this like years long thing. And now anytime someone hears the name of one of these environmental groups, you know, they might think, hmm, are they are they foreign funded? Mm -hmm. Are there U.S. interests behind this? I'm not so sure. It's it's the same thing they did with climate science. Um, the The deniers never won. They never won the argument. Mm-hmm. But but now there's always this like this element of doubt that goes along with any discussion of climate change, and it's it's just like throwing sand into the gears of climate action. It just it just mucks everything up and slows everything down.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's so interesting. And and, and it's true that like just the um i don't know getting people to even just think twice about oh i don't know i've heard this group is you know maybe just funding a us agenda is is enough to get people to kind of tune out or even shift their thinking on things um that's so it's so interesting so kind of bringing us up to the present did you find that a lot of these tactics that were used, you know, from the 60s all the way through to the 90s up to now, are is it kind of the same tactics that are being used or the same messages um, that we're seeing today or have things shifted a bit?
1: I think at a big picture level, it's the same messages and many of the same players. And I was I was really struck by this. When I was watching that big oil disinformation hearing about a year ago, um, where where Congress hauled in you know a bunch of executives from like Exxon and Chevron and other oil and gas companies and was asking them um, you know about their role in lying about climate science, and so they, this is in the book, but I was I was watching that and I I saw that the Republicans called this witness this guy Neil Crabtree who is. Um, an oil and gas worker who was supposed to build the Keystone XL tar sands pipeline um, from Canada down to Texas, mm-hmm. and so every time the Republicans had a chance to to speak, they would they would bring up this witness and they would be like, "Look, look at what Biden did. Yeah. Biden took this poor man's job away. Like, how <laughs> dare he do that?" And I was like, "This isn't related at all to what the conference is." is talking about, I was like, why do they keep, why do they keep referencing this dude? Yeah. And then I, I started, I just got curious and I started looking it up and it turns out, um, Neil Crabtree had been um, enlisted by this group, Americans for Tax Reform, Uh to take part in this campaign called Biden Killed My Job, like hashtag. (laughs) And, And then I was like, oh shit, Americans for Tax Reform. Yeah. Like, their, their name is on the original, like, climate denial playbook document, yeah. like, back in the 90s, along with Exxon and all of them. And I was like, this this is so, like, amazing on some level. Like, these companies are being hauled in to account to Congress about their role in sp- spreading denial. And then the same right-wing group that helped them write that playbook is now, like, running their defense in the middle of the hearing and also defending oil from Canada. I was like, the history just like, it never stops.
0: Yeah no it's it's wild I, that was funny too because he even there was one point in that hearing where they were like and did president biden ever call you to apologize for taking your job it was like that kind of a question then even he was like well i mean i wouldn't expect the president of the united states to call me <laughs> <You know? laughs> oh god and like I, there was another point too where they were you know and how long were you out of you know work and he was like well i mean you know like i found another job, like, a week later.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Well, and and then, you know, to, to, to just, like, bring it all even a little bit further into the present, you know, that, that was around the same time that the Biden administration was trying to do the Build Back Better Act. And, of course, like, Joe Manchin was one of the biggest obstacles to making... That happened, but all all the same oil and gas players who've always opposed climate action, they were like, okay, Joe Manchin is like our tool now mm-hmm. um, that we can use to oppose this thing. And so a, a few months after Build Back Better was basically abandoned and people were like, Okay, it's not gonna happen, the Alberta government flew Joe Manchin up to the tar sands. Oh my god. Gave him a tour and was like this is our friend <laughs> in Washington, and Joe Manchin was like, "I love Canadian oil." And then, afterwards, Joe Manchin goes back and invites the Premier of Alberta to like testify in front of Congress about why this oil from Canada is so important. And and yet again, it's wow. like this thing that's been continuing since the the 1960s. It's like the most reactionary political forces always just see an interest in this huge oil reserve in Canada.
0: Wow. God. It's, it's kind of depressing because it's, um, I don't know. I was, I was saying this the other day to someone. I'm like, you know, they really haven't come up with like a new tactic in decades because they haven't had to. (laughs) (laughs) It's still working. Yeah. Wow. Um, awesome. All right. Well, thanks for taking the time to talk to me. And we'll stick a link to the book in the show notes and also uh, your other reporting so people can follow that. Is there anything else that um, you want to let people know is coming up? Or
1: Yeah, we're having the official U.S. launch for the book on November 15th. At the Climate Museum in New York. So awesome. I don't know if this will come out before it will, then or not. Yeah. But... So it'll
0: come out on Tuesday next week. So that's perfect. Oh, that's the that's day of the event. End. So that's perfect.
1: If any listeners are in New York, they can come down to that
0: and get angry in person. That's awesome. It's also exciting that the Climate Museum has a physical space now. Very cool. Thanks, Jeff. Awesome.
1: Yeah, well, thanks so much for having me on. I've always appreciated your
0: work. So I'm (laughs) excited to do this. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much. That's it for this time. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. As some of you might know, it looks like Twitter is going to implode. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. In any case, I've made the move to shift a lot of the things that I was doing on there over to our newsletter. Every week, I will compile the top five or maybe six or seven sometimes (laughs) stories on climate from the week, why they're important, and what the context is around them that you need to understand. If you want a quick curated look into what's going on with climate every week, make sure to sign up at drilledpodcast.com. Drilled is an original critical frequency production. The show was created and reported by me, Amy Westervelt. Original music and mixing and mastering for this episode by Peter Duff. Our artwork is by Matthew Fleming. For ad-free episodes and bonus content, you can sign up for our Patreon at patreon.com drilled.